many years ago, um, I heard this man for the first time on RT Radio. Um, he was probably singing um, with a band called The Johnsons with Paul Brady and um, Adrian Johnson and Lucy Johnson at the time. Um, he's a truly remarkable man and has been a, a major influence and inspiration for me and for Nula, Nula O'Connor in our work and particularly in our work when, when we went about um, going on that journey to see what happened to Irish music when it left here. We made a series for BBC television with, um, with RTE back in 1990. It was called Bringing It All Back Home and the series could not or would not have been made without this man, without his erudition, without his musicality, without his insight, without his passion and without his love for our, our music. Would you welcome please the wonderful Mick Maloney. This is Nula O'Connor. Say hello to Nula. Hiya Nula. Hiya. And will you welcome Michelle Mulcahy, who comes from one of the great Irish traditional music families. Michelle, as you can see, just doesn't play one instrument. <laughs> I see one, two, three, four. <laughs> And Mick has a couple, as well, a couple as well. Mick, you got in from New York. You did? I did. Yeah. Safe and sound. It would appear so, yeah. <laughs> Somebody said to me once that the condition of Irishness, Mick, seems to be that condition, if you like, of being in between. Between, of being idiotatra. You know, you're, where you're neither here nor you're there. You're somewhere in between. You're somebody who is been traversing the Atlantic Ocean from your home initially in Limerick um, to Philadelphia and New York City where you, where you teach now. Um, would you agree with that, 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 that being Irish or Irish American, they're different things? When you go on a ramble, that's the way uh, it is, and, and an extended ramble particularly so. And uh, for me, the ramble started going to England with the Johnsons in 1967 and then going from there to America in 1973 and being there ever since with a huge number of trips back, back here to Ireland and to other parts of the world. So it's, uh, I think, I, I don't know if I've ever not been jet-lagged, you know. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's a good excuse for everything wrong that you do, for, for, for anything else. So, uh, you, you can use it. Tell, you can say I, I told you, Carol. The story of Irish music in America has been your lifetime's work, really. Take me back to how you fell into that, and surely the discussions that we've been having, we've been having here about people coming and going. Yeah, um, first of all, I, I would have to say I never, I never thought of myself as an emigrant. You know, going there yeah. in 1973 wasn't like somebody going after the famine uh, and not looking over their shoulder. Uh, and knowing there was nothing to come back to. That was a different experience. I, I went under much better circumstances. I got a, a scholarship to, to study folklore at the University of Pennsylvania. My first project was to, ended up being to, to study a particular composer called Ed Reby. His name would be very familiar to most Irish musicians, in fact, all Irish musicians. And I'd say the most prolific composer since Turlico Carlin in terms of having his compositions accepted in the Irish music, music scene by other musicians in that way, measured in that way. Uh, and he lived in Philadelphia. He was a very humble man. Um, he, an immigrant from County Cavan, came over in 1912 when he was 16 and apprenticed to the plumbing trade, was a plumber, raised a family, was a good fiddler, uh, recorded once for Victor, but his gift was to compose, and all the music that we play, you know, had to be composed by somebody somewhere along the line, and it was a great gift to me to be able to go to a man who was composing within the living tradition and having his compositions accepted and played by uh, scores and indeed hundreds and now thousands of musicians, and learning how he did it. And, and that was when I first realized there's something over here that I knew nothing about back in Ireland and that I have to learn about. And that was the beginning of a, a journey that's lasted the last 44 years. 
Yeah, um, I remember um, when we were making Bringing It All Back Home, or just before we were making it, I went to Philadelphia to meet Mick, and it was the, the first time I had met him, but of course I was familiar with uh, the music, and uh, I went to a gig that you were doing with the Green Fields of America, and you played a song called Kilkelly, and it was uh, an you know, interesting song uh, composed of from real letters from uh, a family in Ireland who ha were, were writing to their... Uh, son in America, and uh, a family in America, and a descendant of that family in America had found the letters, correct? Correct. Yeah. The, the letters, the family name was Hunt, yeah. and they came from Kilkelly in County Mayo. Yeah. And when the letters, uh, one member of the family died in testate, and uh, his possessions were being uh, divided up, and people saw, came across all these letters written from Ireland to America and said, I wonder what we'll do with these. They said, well, we have a, we have a, a, a relation, Peter Jones, uh, who's, who's a part of the family, and he's a songwriter, and he might be interested in this. So, so you, you, you took up the song. I went to the gig. I saw people in tears at that gig listening to the song, and uh, I said to Philip, we, we, have to, uh, we have to do that. We have to feature that song, and indeed it is a standout song. In the, in the film and in the series, so much so that when I was doing, as, uh, as we did in the early days with you, a little talk about the film um, in, in Trinity for the Medical Association, uh, or the medical faculty alumni, a man came up to me and said, you're doing something on bringing it all home, back home, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, I hope you're not playing that Kilkelly song, because I'll only cry. <laughs> well, and he was he was living in America, and then yeah. we came to, when we came the day we filmed the song yeah. in New York. Uh, you you came up to New York, and we were filming in a bar with a lot of glare, and we uh, we, we covered you around with boom uh, microphone booms covered in tablecloths to keep the glare out. We had an electrician in for the day who who was introduced to us as, as, as Polish, and um, so he he was a Polish immigrant and uh, to New York and he was doing his thing and we were recording away and then we heard these convulsive sob, uh, sobs coming from behind the tablecloth and we looked in and he was, he was about six foot four and like, literally in a heap uh, on the floor uh, saying you know, that he missed his country and uh, you know, just, he'd been so moved by it. He had, it had come as a complete shock to him because he'd heard tunes all day long and, so he, he, he was uh, completely undone by that song. Yeah. Well, myself and Robbie O'Connell were singing. I don't know if, you're, if you know the song that, that Newell is talking about, Kill Kelly. It's written from Emigrant Letters and it's been played a lot here. In fact, you finished one of your programmes with it here mm. and bringing it all back home. Uh, and it's a song uh, about separation. And it really, we found out very quickly when myself and Robbie O'Connell used to sing it together, we found out we had to close our eyes because the handkerchiefs were out by verse number three. And we couldn't get through it ourselves. We'd start, <laughs> we'd, we'd start blubbering away ourselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole of America could identify because, of course, it's a nation of immigrants. Uh, and uh, for 10 years, it was number one requested song on American folk radio and brought us, uh, funnily enough, that song brought us to all sorts of places because people knew us through the song. And there was even a yeah. parody of it at one stage. There was a parody of it in the Celtic Tiger years. There's a verse in the song, Bridget is happy you named a child for her because she's got six, although she's got six of her own. And the parody which was written in the Midlands in the Celtic Tiger years is, Bridget is happy you named a house for her, although she's got six of her own. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you then, we had to stop singing. <laughs> anyway, why don't you play a tune? Why don't we Since play a tune? Here. Okay. Uh, seeing that we're here, and I've known Michelle here for 22 years, and we've been all over the joint, all over the whole planet, in fact, and she'll tell you a bit about that. But um, this is a song. We, we started and bringing it all back home, talking about Irish music in Appalachia, and your first programme. I think was, uh, it was a tremendously educational for, for here in showing the links between Irish music and Appalachian and bluegrass music, you know, the earlier migrations from the north of Ireland, uh, the people who called themselves Scotch-Irish, bringing uh, the melodies. And in a way, the, the, the story of Appalachian music is the, the melodic tradition of the Gaelic world, Scotland and Ireland, uh, allied to the backbeat of West Africa through the banjo. Uh, and uh, 
more of that in a little bit, but, uh, but I think you, you, your program on that was magnificent. You had the Everly Brothers, as I remember, in, in that. Uh, and one of my favorite uh, uh, songwriters uh, from the middle of the 19th century would be Dan Emmett. And Dan Emmett, um, he'd, he'd be best known as the writer of the song Dixie in America, you know. And uh, he was Irish-American. His, his grandfather was from Mayo. Uh, and uh, he was a surgeon in Washington's army and after the war, the Revolutionary War, he moved the family to Mount Vernon, Ohio and his grandson became a very famous fiddle player and singer and ended up, as did Stephen Foster, in the town of Cincinnati, which is in Ohio and uh, the home of the Underground Railroad uh, and looking across at the slave state of Kentucky and seeing black boatmen go up and down the Ohio River, very influenced by black music and indeed became one of the foremost figures in a very troubled chapter in American and indeed Irish-American musical history, minstrelsy, with Irish-Americans blacking up and pretending to represent African-American culture, but that's, that's, that's another story. But there were some very good songs composed in it nonetheless, and this is one of his, um, but he's best known as, as, as composing Dixie, uh, and when, when we perform South of the Mason-Dixon line and, and tell audiences that the anthem of the South was composed by an Irish-American on a wet day in New York City, that goes over like a lead balloon. And, and, uh, but he, just before he introduced the banjo to Ireland, along with Joel Walker Sweeney, whose grandparents came from Mayo as well, they, they were the ones who introduced the banjo to Ireland in 1844. He composed this song, and, and uh, according to the Harvard Theatre Collection, sang it in Cork and in Dublin and in Belfast. And it's called The Boatman's Dance. High roll the boatman roll, floating down the river on the Ohio. High roll the boatman roll, floating down the river on the Ohio. And the boatman laugh, the boatman sing, the boatman up to everything. And when the boatman gets on shore, he spends his cash and he works for more. Dance the boatman dance, dance the boatman dance. Dance all night till the broad daylight And go home with the girls in the morning High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio The oyster boat should stick to the shore The fishing smack should venture more The schooner sails before the wind The steamboat leaves a streak behind Oh, dance the boatman, dance Dance the boatman, dance Dance all night till the broad daylight And go home with the girls in the morning High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio I went to shore the other day To see what the boatman had to say And there I let my passions loose They put me in the calaboose So dance the boatman dance Dance the boatman dance Dance all night till the broad daylight And go home with the girls in the morning High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river on the Ohio High roll the boatman roll Floating down the river on the Ohio Don't dance at all Sky blue jacket And tarpaulin hat Look out me boys For the nine-tailed cat Dance the boatman Dance Dance the boatman Dance Oh dance all night Till the broad daylight And go home With the girls In the morning I roll The boatman roll Floating down the river In the Ohio I roll The boatman roll Floating down the river In the Ohio The boatman Is a thrifty man There's none can do As the boatman can Never did I see a pretty girl in my life But that she was a boatman's wife Dance the boatman, dance Dance the boatman, dance Dance all night till the broad daylight And go home with the girls in the morning I roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio I roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio I roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio I roll the boatman roll Floating down the river in the Ohio
That's beautiful, Mick. Um, beautiful, Michelle. We're, we were talking outside, Mick, a little bit about um, technology. And you were saying that it would be just very important to talk about the story of Irish music colliding with technology. I think that was the word you used um, in, 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 in the States. And I heard you mention the word Victor. I take it you mean RCA Victor. And the, the music that left here, the Michael Coleman's and the various different people, and what happened to the music and how it was encoded in the States. Do you want to tell us a little bit about well, that story? Well, the recording industry starts, of course, in America with Thomas Edison in, in 1879 in New Jersey. And he had no idea what he was creating. He thought he was creating a dictaphone machine. And, uh, of course, it, it turned into something completely different with the cylinder recordings coming out and then later flat discs invented by a man called Emile Berliner. Uh, and uh, after that, of course, uh, it was a progressively better sound. And you had these incredible musicians uh, coming from an Ireland at the time that was very, very much a third world country after independence and no electricity in most parts of the country. People like, as you mentioned, Michael Coleman and other musicians too, from parts of Ireland like County Sligo, coming from small cottages with no electricity and, and then going over to New York City and, and Philadelphia and, uh, and Boston and, and Chicago and encountering the cutting edge of, of technology over there with the new recording techniques, especially after 1925 when the old microphones were invented, and, and making records there because the record companies, they mostly wanted to encourage uh, ethnic groups uh, to buy the machines. That's where the money was. So if the recorded performers that were familiar with them, they would send, I suppose, the equivalents at the time of the A&R people, the artists and repertoire people, into the ethnic communities and, uh, and do partnerships with people like... Uh, like uh, the O'Byrne DeWitt, Ellen O'Byrne DeWitt, who was uh, an immigrant, yeah, uh, from County Leitrim, uh, living in New York, who had an import store, and say, look, if you, if you sell our records and, uh, and, and tell us who the good performers are, uh, we'll make them. Uh, and, and the Irish recording industry was born uh, around 1916, coinciding with, of course, with the revolution, which saw a huge surge in Irish nationalism in America. Uh, and it was no coincidence that the record companies were drawn into that business around then. And uh, between then and, say, the Great Depression in, in 1930, as you well know, and you've played them a lot in your radio show, uh, thousands of recordings were made, often from exemplary recording artists uh, like Michael Coleman, that were brought back to Ireland and that influenced the whole tradition here in a remarkable way. Uh, and I think one of the reasons we have a global music now where Irish musicians, and they don't have to be born in Ireland, as you well know, our music is now diasporic music and played by people from all, all nationalities and ethnicities, and all are welcome as long as they go on the artistic journey. And one of the reasons we're able to play uh, a common repertoire and sit down in a session, even though we've never met one another before, is because of these pool of recordings made at the cutting edge of, of technology in New York and in Philadelphia. Uh, in, in the 1920s. It's an amazing story and one I think we're very unaware of. And who were the artists, just for people here, the, the standout artists that were recorded at that time? Well, the standout artists, as far as traditional musicians would be concerned, would, would be Michael Coleman. All the, the great uh, fiddle players from County Sligo, James Morrison, Michael Coleman, Paddy Killorn, they'd be household names, Tom Ennis, the piper, and the Flanagan brothers from County Waterford. In fact, the only municipality in Ireland that has a plaque up at the home of people who went off to America, became expat kind of stars over there, uh, is the city of Waterford, where the 23-year-old mayor last year unveiled a plaque and, and gave a very, very uh, wonderful speech on the diaspora and the importance of artists in the diaspora and unveiled a plaque to the Flanagan Brothers from Waterford, New York. They're heroes of mine because of the banjo and accordion. Heroes of Michelle, too. Yeah. Tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Flanagans. The Flanagan Brothers, they, they, were, they, they left in, in 19, uh, 1911 from Waterford and they ended up in New York in the vaudeville era and they recorded over 160 uh, songs and tunes and skits and sketches, a lot of them were influenced by vaudeville, but a lot of them were very good hard driving traditional music and they played mostly dance music and they played in the Irish dance halls, that's where they made their living and the Irish dance hall was a very important social institution as you know because that's where the new immigrants met one another and can you think, oh, can you imagine what it was like for the immigrant then, coming from an Ireland where a lot of the marriages were arranged, you know, in rural Ireland and where you didn't really have that much of a choice where it was almost impossible to marry outside your class, uh, let alone your ethnicity, that wasn't even on the table. And you go over to New York and, and uh, you go to the immigrant dance hall, you meet a whole community and you can pick your own mate for life. 
Can you imagine? I mean, it's very hard to get your head around that today. But I mean, when, when, when you think of, of, of the cosmic nature of that change, it's a change that we, we, we don't even think about today, nor can we. But uh, the dance hall was a very important, and it existed music as long as there were immigrants. Or played a role in that. Sorry? Music and culture, music played, music a, huge culture role played a huge role in, in yeah. that social change. Yeah, and, and that's where, before microphones, the only two instruments that could really play effectively for, for the dance halls, before the microphones of the banjo and accordion, was like musical trench warfare. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, would, would you, you have an example? Could you let? Of course we would. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have an example? <laughs> Have you a banjo? <laughs> I have a banjo. Yeah. Yeah. There are two banjo makers in Ireland. There's Tom Cusson and David Boyle. This is a David Boyle banjo made in, in Leakstead, County Kildare. What will we play? What, what are we play? Okay. okay, we'll play barn dances. Okay. This is a Joe Bands and a tune written by Cos Tehan, who was an immigrant from Castle Island in, in, in Kerry. And the reason he was called Cos is a great story. Uh, he was called Cos Tehan because uh, it was a time when there were very liberal laws about uh, becoming a citizen or becoming a permanent resident in America. And if you were somebody's cousin, you could be claimed out. So half the population of Castle Island said they were his cousins, and, and, and they came out, and he didn't know who they were. So he called them, he called them Cuz, and they called him Cuz. So he was always known as Cuz Tehan. And so he, he wrote the second tune. cities. They, they mainly tended in the 19th century to be in city settings rather than like the earlier 
emigration was to places like rural Appalachia. So there was a kind of a thriving burlesque, vaudeville, a fairly rough and ready sort of music scene that they would have encountered and then quickly became stars of, but would not have been in any way uh, a music that they had come from or known of. Or So just talk a bit about people who got into, uh, like the, the, um, the brothers, the... The, the Flanagan brothers? No, 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 no. They are much earlier. Uh, yeah. Harrigan and Hart. Harrigan sorry. And Hart, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people like that who wrote for the yeah. music theatre. And what kind of a setting was it? Yeah. Well, well first of all, about Irish migration in, 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 the, in the 19th century, uh, the historians often concentrate on, on these days on, on the famine migrations and, and on the movement to the cities afterwards. But well before that, and, and that's even after the Scotch-Irish migrations, which have been the 1700s, the Irish were, were, go were going to all parts of America and involved in just about every aspect of American life. And uh, I often wish that the whole diaspora, uh, the, the history of the diaspora, would be ta taught here as a required subject in, in the education system from the early stage onwards, because the story of our people, as you well know, I don't need, need to tell you, because of, of, of bringing it all back home was such a pioneering concept at the time. The story of our people is as much the story of what we've done abroad as it is uh, at the island itself here, and I think we would all agree on that at this point. But um, there's not an aspect of American technology, uh, industrial development that we weren't involved in, building the canals, building the, the railroads, uh, involved in coal mining, in fact, starting the first of, of the major unions, uh, and, you know, in, in the coal mines of, of uh, eastern Pennsylvania, uh, the, 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 the gold rush. We were involved in every aspect of American life, and, and uh, we settled everywhere the railroad went, the little Irish towns uh, all over the country. So um, I would have to say that, that we blanketed the country, but uh, indeed you're right. After the famine, a lot of the migrations were to the cities, and, um, and the songs then, uh, we, we wrote it. One of the things I learned was I knew nothing about Irish-American song, but I went to America. Like a lot of you, I suppose, the only songs I would have known about, about Irish-America were the songs of Tin Pan Alley, which starts in the 1890s. Tin Pan Alley was 28th and Broadway, and uh, Munro Rosenfeld, a, a songwriter and a journalist, um, he, he said that it was, it was going up there with all the pianos playing songs for the, for the vaudeville singers, that was like hearing tin pans banging together, and that's how I got the name Tin Pan Alley. Uh, but, uh, you know, th those, those, those songs uh, were all I heard when I was growing up, uh, songs like When Irish Eyes Are Smiling and Ireland Must Be Heaven for my mother came from there, all, all those kind of songs, I used to think the Yanks were daft because there was nothing in these songs about digging spuds in County Limerick in the rain, and, and uh, I couldn't relate to them at all. When I went over there, I realized, of course, that the Tin Pan Alley songwriter was trying to create uh, positive images for, uh, for cultures that had been traumatized, and you, you can't live with that trauma throughout your life. So these were kind of ready-made images of an invented nation, an invented childhood, and, and they were very popular. But there was a whole other song tradition I wasn't aware of, and that was the songs about everything we did in America. Songs about the railroad, songs about the coal mining, songs about the canal building, songs about the gold rush, and particularly songs about urban America. And you mentioned Harrigan and Hart. And Ned Harrigan is my favorite songwriter in America. He was born uh, the year before the famine in, 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 uh, in New York City, but his grandfather had actually gone from County Cork on the cod fisheries to Newfoundland and had settled there, and, uh, and his son, uh, William Harrigan, uh, had become a seafaring man and settled eventually in New York, where Ned Harrigan was born. He was to become the most famous songwriter in the Irish-American tradition, and he didn't write songs lamenting the loss of being Irish. He wrote songs about getting on in America, and all his songs were about tenement life and, and songs about uh, involvement in urban politics, uh, relations with other ethnic groups in America. It was like an ethnography, really, of life in New York City. And that, that was what fascinated me about, about Ned Harrigan. But the songs weren't written in the Shannon style or in a traditional style. They were written for the American stage. And uh, I'll sing one of them for you. And uh, this is my favorite one of all. And uh, it's, uh, it, it really depicts life, a tenement life in New York uh, in a very, very brilliant way. He, Harrigan was known as, uh, as the Dickens of America because of his powers of wordsmithing, I suppose. But he liked that. He liked even better being called the Euripides of America. He loved that as well. <laughs> and, when, uh, when we heard Adam speak a little earlier on yeah. about, um, you know, rows of bunk beds in flats that's, that, that students are now renting, you know, we, 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 just, we, we just hear about that here. That I was thinking of 
This song came into my head as yeah. well. Down in Battle Alley lived Timothy McNally, a decent politician and a gentleman at that. Beloved by all the neighbors, the gossoons and the babies that occupied the building called McNally's Row of Flats. And it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for rats. All jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather, they constitute the tenants in McNally's row of flats. That great conglomeration of men from every nation, the Tower of Babylonium, it couldn't equal that. A peculiar institution where the brogues without dilution rattle down together in McNally's row of flats. And it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for us. All jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather. They constitute the tenants in McNally's row of flats. and other slapers, Italian lazzaronis and lots of hungry cats, lying on the benches and dying there by inches, from the open ventilation in McNally's row of flats, and it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for It never was expected that the rent would be collected. They levied on the furniture, the bedding, and the slats. And it's then you'd see the rally as they battled down the alley, evicted from the building called McNally's Row of Flats. And it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany, Chinese and Africans and a paradise for us. All jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather. They constitute the tenants in McNally's Row of It's really wonderful, isn't it? No. It's one of the best songs I think ever written about <laughs> the Irish experience because when we went to America, the first thing we did was meet neighbours we'd never have met here. We'd meet them today, but we wouldn't have met, ever met them then. And that's why uh, Harrigan's songs were never looking over the shoulder, always looking forward to life in America and adjusting to the new culture. Right. Now, Mick, you, you teach now in NYU these days. Yes. Yeah. And um, Michelle has been one of your, well, not quite pupils over the years, but you and Michelle have a teacher-pupil relationship going back a long time, and that now she's all grown up. And well, I don't, know the, I don't know who's yeah. the teacher today. She's yeah. as much a teacher, and me the pupil is the other way around. And but Michelle she's a very good example of what's happened to traditional music in the last 10 years or so. It's amazing. And I don't know if, if uh, you know, it was it was never possible to imagine uh, the change in the status of traditional music. When I was growing up, um, I mean, traditional music was essentially looked out upon, wasn't it? Yes, you know, it was. Yeah. It was low status, it was rural, it was, 
It was looked down upon even in the national media, I'd say. I mean, that's a part of a larger discussion, I suppose. But um, it certainly was a part of, I suppose, what historians would call the whole post-colonial thing. You know, when, when you're colonised, you lose your confidence. It takes a while to get it back. And, and um, I think the tradition... The shame attached to it, the, maybe, shame, yeah, the language, yeah, the, yeah, language yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but it was impossible then to imagine a musician like Michelle, multi-instrumentalist, a PhD at the University of Limerick, and uh, getting her PhD in looking at the combination of, of uh, I suppose, two different musical traditions, Burmese. Maybe you, talk, you want to talk about it yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I suppose it was in uh, 2009 that um, I arrived in Bangkok. So I'd, uh, I met Mick. I was there for a couple of days, and um, I was a music teacher at the time. And Mick says to me, uh, we're going to go on a trip. So when I usually hear this, I know it's something absolutely, it's going to be brilliant or fantastic. So it's such a life-changing experience. So um, so we went to um, a refugee camp about six hours north of, of Bangkok. And we were just armed with a banjo and a harp and a, a concertina. So um, so we were just visiting uh, very briefly um, that day. So, uh, But when we arrived there, um, uh, there's a... a really fantastic and amazing group of people that we met there so uh, called uh, the Karen and they're the largest ethnic uh, minority group in, in Burma or Myanmar as I, I should correctly say and uh, part of their cultural tradition um, and se a central part of it uh, was the hearth uh, so myself and Mick, uh, we, it was like a, culture, a cultural exchange that happened at that time, but it was so um, it was such a life-changing experience that it caused me to go back actually and do a, a PhD uh, study on it. But um, it, it was just horrific circumstances that these people um, had endured, and they were fleeing Burma, uh, you know, at the hands of the uh, Burmese uh, ruling dictatorship at the time. So, uh, so it was a very special time for us, and um, a very special time for the people in the sense that we were taking their story and bringing it back home, bringing it back to Ireland um, and out of that experience um, was the PhD itself so I'd, um, I wrote some music around it as well after the initial experience. So. And I think one of the most uh, lovely experiences I ever had with you was when you welcomed the Corinne uh, a, a population from County Mayo. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. When you welcomed them down in, in their full um, ethnic dress and, uh, and you did your presentation Absolutely, with the Corinne yeah. uh, Irish County Mayo yes, um, group, uh, you know, applauding you on. Yeah, we just celebrated in the University of Limerick after it all. So, they, um, as part of the Government of Ireland refugee scheme, they came to Ireland in 2007, so, and I, vi I visited them many times in uh, Castlebar and Ballina, so, um, but uh, they're absolutely fantastic there so while they're preserving their Korean tradition and uh, they're making Korean harps in, in Castlebar they too at the same time are learning like uh, jigs and reels and you know they're playing uh, Irish instruments as well which is fantastic so it just goes to show how far music can travel you know and what, what is encompassed within the instrument itself there's so many stories and so many memories and so many memories to share and out of that create this create music. So so I tried this view which is called uh, uh, the Korean March. So I wrote it after after those couple of hours that we spent in the refugee camp um, and this this uh, the tune itself represents my story and my experience and what happened um, at that particular time. So, so yes and I'll try a couple of reels after so Mick uh, spoke about the great musicians that were recorded in America um, people like Michael Coleman and Martin Wynn and I'm going to play one of his compositions for you so it was recorded in 1948 so Martin Wynn was a great fiddle player from County Sligo and I'll follow that by two, which was uh, recorded by Michael Coleman in uh, 1927. So these come from those great, iconic uh, records uh, from that time. So. <laughs> Thank you. 
นี่เชียงนอใจเออพี่น้องนั่นทำให้ไม่สามารถเป็นได้ฟิลิปพาสมีการร้องเพลงชื่อว่าเคลลี่และพี่น้องมีความน่าสนใจมากในเพลงอเมริกันอังกฤษที่ได้เขียนในช่วงศตวรรษที่20นั้นเขาเป็นคนชื่อชอนโอนโนลันจากจังหวัดวิกโลเขาเป็นชื่อวิกโลพายเปอร์และเป็นเป็นแบบการตั้งใจที่ดูในลักษณะของนักท่องเที่ยวอเมริกันและอเมริกันอุบัติเหตุในยุคนี้มันเปลี่ยนไปแต่เป็นแบบสังเกตการณ์ในยุคนี้ของพวกเขาและคุณเคลลี่3วันก่อนวันนี้วันนี้ฉันมาที่บ้านในคอร์กจะพาฉันไปหาน้องมาร์ตินเคลลี่อยู่ที่นิวยอร์กฉันลงที่นิวยอร์กและเริ่มต้นไม่เสียเวลา To find me, Uncle President's located on Broadway. I went to the directory, me Uncle for to find, but I found so many Kellys there that I nearly lost me mind. Well, I went to ask directions from a friendly German Jew, but he said, "Please excuse me, but me name is Kelly too, and there's Kelly the barman." Kelly, the carman. Kelly, the sailor who came from Donegal. Kelly from Kerry. Kelly from Derry. But the Kelly I was looking for, I could not find at all. Up to Boston, that city of great fame. I'd heard the Kellys living there had made themselves a name. The Kellys run the state house, the Kellys run the banks, the police and fire department. Sure, the Kellys fill the ranks. Dan Kelly runs the railroads. John Kelly runs the seas. Kate Kelly runs the suffragettes, and she looks right good to me. Well, I went to ask directions from a naturalized Chinese, but he says, "Please excuse me, but me name it is Kelly, and there's Kelly from Dublin, Kelly from Sligo, little Dixie Kelly who came from the county fair. Sure, Kelly built the pyramids with good old Galway granite, and when Kelly discovered the North Pole, sure he found that." Just that just brings us on to um, Irish America today, and a lot of discussion about the fact that since about. 9/11, apparently, um, the numbers of Irish emigrants into America has fallen off a cliff, and we're looking at maybe the disappearance of a homogenous Irish American community or a very different kind of community. Um, I, 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 I sense that that discussion coming on a variety of levels. You know, when you're in the ICAD business and courses and universities are geared towards. Um, Discussing the changing nature of the diaspora, and um, you know, Irish America has never been monolithic. It's always it 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 cuts across the whole society. Uh, there are 45 million, according to one of the censuses, the last one or the one before, 45 uh, million Americans that can claim some kind of Irish ancestry. Uh, it could be related to the migrations uh, to the south, you know, from the north of Ireland. It could be related to more recent migrations after the famine. But one way or the other, when you're asked to name the three. Uh, 
uh, ethnic associations that you can identify with, you can put on, and, and based on those figures, 45 million out of a population of maybe 280 million, that's an awful lot of Americans. You can't put a handle on that, it cuts across uh, the society, and uh, it, it, it transcends uh, really party politics, it transcends social classes, social divisions. One of the most extraordinary statistics uh, that's not known to most Irish Americans, and I would imagine it wouldn't be that known here, uh, and myself and my African-American colleague, Lenny Sloan, we go around uh, in a presentation we give called Two Roads Diverged, is the relationship between Irish and African-Americans. You know, the Harvard DNA study of 15 years ago came up with the figure of 38% of African-Americans that have Irish DNA. And that doesn't figure in the census figures. Now, what do you make of that? Then uh, he, 38% uh, um, of African Americans of Irish DNA. And, and where did it happen? It happened on the edges of society, uh, where there were cohabitations, there were informal marriages. And it happened uh, a long time ago. It happened in the, in the railroad camps. It happened uh, in, in, the, in the towns that sprung up around the canals. It happened in the timber camps. It happened where, where anti-miscegenation laws couldn't be enforced. Uh, and a good example, uh, Rachel Schwerns, uh, at one of her presentations, she's a writer for the New York Times, uh, African-American writer, she just has, was publishing a book at the time, and she came up with the, this story, and it's, it, basically the story of that 38% is an amalgam of individual stories, whether it be of Muhammad Ali or Barack Obama. And this particular story uh, connects us to the fortunes of the Shield Brothers, Presbyterians in County Tyrone. Down in, uh, I think it was Mississippi, it was a southern state, well before the Irish famine, and the three of them were dirt poor, uh, but one of them married up and as a present uh, got uh, six slaves as a present. It's almost unimaginable to think of that today, a wedding present, six slaves. But, you know, read Huckleberry Finn and, uh, and read uh, Tom Sawyer, uh, very contested parts of the American uh, educational system, you know, and, and, and you have the, the family with one or two slaves in it all the time. Anyway, one of the Shields brothers uh, got, got six slaves, and one of those slaves was a 14-year-old African-American girl. And one of the Shields brothers impregnated, impregnated her. Nobody will ever know how. That story will never be told. But that girl, uh, the, 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 the girl that was born from that marriage was the great-grandmother of Michelle Obama. Now, that's in the, in the book that Rachel Schwerns published on, the, on, the, on the, the, the family line of Michelle Obama. Multiply all those stories together, you get 38%. So at uh, the beginning, I think, we're not even beginning to write our history or know much about the, uh, the Irish diaspora in America when you consider figures like that. Uh, so I would have to uh, say a word of caution on all of this, that we're only beginning the story of documenting our life in America as a culture. Well, Mick, um, we're only beginning to touch on a whole range of things. We could talk about the Civil War, music in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But we have women, etc. We have, we, but we have come... You do want to get in a word about women, don't you? I do, because uh, <laughs> I just, the song... I, I love songs about strong women. They're left out of the history. They're, you know, when you look upon songs, women don't figure in the songs for the most part because uh, the sort of things that women did didn't make them eligible to be the heroines of songs. Uh, for the most part, but with exceptions. And if you, if you look upon novels, for instance, you will see the Irish servant woman all over 19th century American novels. In fact, the, 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 the famous novel by Israel Zangwill, uh, The Melting Pot, which gave rise to the term The Melting Pot, uh, starts off with an Irish servant woman called Bridget, uh, given out about uh, orthodox Jewish ways of separating the maid and the butter, you know. And uh, so y you find uh, the servant women are a lot in these songs. But um, Irish women, uh, they exceeded men in terms of migrations. After the famine, more Irish women than men emigrated. Mostly got to do with the dowry system. If you didn't have a dowry, there was no place in the system. So more women than men emigrated, making us completely unique among European groups. And we were talking about this this morning, Nula. Um, most of the women emigrated alone. And, and they worked in either the textile mills or as domestic service and sent back money. Uh, a lot of the Catholic churches you see around here and in other parts of the country were built by emigrants' remittances from, from these women who saved their money, postponed marriage, and, uh, and, and, and uh, what Dennis Clark, the great historian from Philadelphia, called the greatest transatlantic philanthropy of the 19th century was women sending back money to this country. 
uh, and uh, to, to send family members out, rebuild the family home, build, rebuild the Catholic Church, and so on. And I always like to sing songs about strong women, and there's certainly of, the, of lovers eloping. There are hundreds of those kinds of songs, and this is one I love. It's uh, a woman who, when her her boyfriend went off to North America um, in disgust after her alpha uh, disapproved of him. Uh, she stole money from him. Now he's up in Enniskillen and the boyfriend's called William, so would be from the other side, shall we say. Uh, and uh, I like this particularly because of that. And anyway, she goes from Belfast to Quebec, the cheapest crossing, and she's only one minor problem when, when she gets to America. Where in the name of God is he? So she goes into a pub and there he is having a drink. And, and <laughs> Robbie O'Connell says this is the Disney version of Irish immigration and he's probably right. But we like because it's a happy ending, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, but uh, they end up going to St. John and, and she sends back the money. And that's a lot of the immigrants who went to Quebec ended up going to New Brunswick. So anyway, we, we rehearsed this this morning, so we will, we will sally into this with great optimism. You play the concertina for this, aren't you? <laughs> We've been down many a road together, but not recently. <laughs> You never know what's next. <laughs> I, I never know what's Michelle, sometimes I hit her with a song she's never heard before. Never bothered her before. It's not going to bother her now. And it's called You Lovers All. I love this song. I was, I was definitely wanted to get this in. Thanks for giving me the chance. Well, thanks for our happy okay. ending. Okay. <laughs> you lovers all, both great and small, that dwell in Ireland. And I hope you'll pay attention while I my pen command. It was my cruel father that drove my love away. But I'm still in hopes we will meet again in North America. My love is neat and handsome to him I gave my heart. And little was our notion that ever we would part. It was in my father's garden this flower did decay. But I'm still in hopes it will bloom again in North America. I did not want for money, good fortune on me shines. And from my father's castle I stole five hundred pounds. It was in the town of Belfast my passage I did pay. My mind made up to follow my love Captain's wife, who was kind to me, as you might understand, and she kept me in her cabin until we reached the land. It was in the town of Quebec we landed on the cave. I knew not where to find my love in North America. But I've been sick and tired and sore, I went into an inn. And twas there I spied my William, the lad I loved with him. I gently took him by the hand and to him I did say, I never thought I'd see your face in all of America. As you might understand And I hear they live quite happily In a town that they call St. John And the money that she took from home In gold 
she paid it down And she thinks no more on Ireland Or in the Skillin town Well, everybody, the wonderful Mick Maloney. And myself. And myself. And Michelle Mulcahy. <laughs> Thank you, Mick, for coming all the way. And uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. An absolute pleasure, Philip. Thanks a million. Okay. A particular thanks to Kira Davy, who has looked after us and minded us and got us on and off the stage without falling down, and to the wonderful Sean Granville, and to Eva Granville, and to a remarkable crew. Thank you very much, lads, and Mr. Jack Gibson, wherever he may be. Thank you very much. Right, good. Good to meet you, Mr. Thank you.